Hello there, and welcome. You're about to enter Rad Bandalar's Hysterocitor. Episode 1, A Brief History of Power For most of recorded human history, the preferred method of governance was ruled by an elite cabal, who used either brute force or hereditary rule, backed to no one's surprise by brute force, to suppress and exploit the masses for personal gain. Then, for reasons unknown to this day, a city-state in Attica said, Hey! Why don't we allow the people to decide what happens? A militarist city-state, whose entire society was predicated upon the subjugation and enslavement of a neighboring population that outnumbered them seven to one. The world then continued along more or less natural forms of government, as kings fought other kings, and some kings put on fancy pants and called themselves emperors and fought other guys who weren't going to be outpantsed and called themselves emperors too. Well, not exactly. The people who happened to be living in territories claimed by a king often found themselves given pointy sticks and told to run across that field and kill the other people with their pointy sticks. Whoever got slaughtered less would find their king declared victor, which meant he got more stuff and power while they got to go home. If it hadn't been sacked and their family raped and murdered, to continue starving until called upon by their king to murder some other king's people once again. Now, it should be said that the Romans, as always, were the exceptions, as their legions lived for that shit and were quite possibly the most autistic military force in all of history. They had to build the exact same buildings no matter where they went, and Jove forbid those buildings didn't incorporate an arch or the whole of the Roman Empire would go into the most spastic, obsessive, compulsive fit in the history of mankind. The arch was the Roman answer to everything. How do I build a gate? An arch. How do I transport water from there to here? Arches. How can I build a dome? Arches in a circle. I'd like to construct a long, dark tunnel as part of my bloodatorium arches. The Roman obsession with arches was captured in painstakingly laconic detail in one of antiquity's most celebrated works, Pliny the Elder's Fuck Yeah! Arches. But basically, for most of recorded human history, life sucked for everyone but about 400 people at any given time. And then once again, for reasons known only to the crones who govern our fates, a group of philosophers just up and decided that government formed by the consent of the governed was the only rational way to organize human affairs. The powers that be were understandably aghast, as the natural order dictated that a select few men should rule the vast, expendable masses because a thug in their past had successfully murdered enough people, and bought off a few more, to be considered chief thug. Upon his death, the chief thug's power would naturally be transmitted to his eldest thug's son. It was obvious to everyone that this was the most common-sense form of governance. And yet, a cabal of wealthy men in North America, who didn't want to pay their taxes, declared themselves independent of their home government and asked themselves, Hey, what if we let the people decide what's going to happen? 
Okay, okay. Just the white landowning males. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel here. And so these men, having tossed off the yoke of a hated parliamentary government with a strong executive, formed a revolutionary new parliamentary government with a strong executive. Instead of having a hereditary monarch, they would have a president, chosen by the people. Sort of. Not really. Okay, he's really a king in all but name, and we really hope he steps down after a while unless a Great Depression and World War happens, and then the guy sticks around until he dies. Instead of a parliament, they'd have a congress. Except the upper chamber wouldn't consist of a bunch of wealthy men chosen by the monarch with titles like Duke Lord Chamberlain of Northumbershire, but would instead be a bunch of wealthy men chosen by other wealthy men in each of the states. The people of this new country practically tripped over themselves in adoration of this completely new, unheard of, totally not like the form of government they had just won their independence from. The architects of this young country painstakingly traced over the lines of the British parliamentary system, while adding a few flourishes to avoid accusations of plagiarism, and declared a glorious new republic, the likes of which had not been seen since antiquity. But even Athens and Rome were merely pretenders to a form of government unique in all of history. These men, these founding fathers, were now preternatural demigods who had bestowed upon a grateful nation a form of governance never before experienced by humanity. Killing two slaves with one whip, they also answered the question that had occupied the minds of philosophers to the point of madness. Just how much of a human was a slave? The Founding Fathers answered, three-fifths. As we all know, into every paradise a serpent shall slither. Just a couple of years after the blessed Founding Fathers shined their divine favor upon a nation yearning for profit and increased slavery, a few poor farmers decided they didn't want to pay taxes either. They led an insurrection to protest paying a portion of their harvest for the privilege of sipping some sweet, sweet hooch. The wealthy tax dodgers, who now ruled the government that they themselves had created, told the poor tax protesters, Drop your weapons. You have 30 seconds to comply. The revolting farmers briefly considered pressing forward, until word reached them that Thomas Jefferson had emptied his nail factory and was at that very moment whipping and beating his army of slave children north to harvest the farmer's wheat and secure the land holdings for himself. As permitted by the I'm a founding father and I can do whatever the hell I want clause of the Constitution. And so the pattern was set for the rest of the country's history. But things weren't all that bad. There was a massive war pitting wealthy industrialists who employed cheap labor against wealthy plantation owners who used slave labor, resulting in the liberation of millions of people within a region that saw them as subhuman animals. In a surprising turn of events, the enlightened denizens of this region used violence and terror to socially isolate and impoverish the freedmen and their descendants for another century. As the years passed and we cleared the natives off our minds and prime farmland, the nation held true to its core principle of using cheap, often foreign labor to make a tiny coterie of men very wealthy. Most other people didn't really care because they were busy farming or killing Indians or getting rich in western mines every day and blowing it all on whores and liquor every night. But then something happened that the elite did not expect. 
Some poor people asked if maybe they could work a few hours less, or maybe make a little bit more money, or maybe not run the risk of death or dismemberment in the performance of their jobs. These anarchists were often promptly shot or beaten to death by police or the local militia, which usually settled matters. But then more people stepped forward to make demands. Most of these pitifully poor commoners were inspired by the book I Can't Fit Through the Gears No More, written by a 12-year-old boy who'd been employed since the age of three to lubricate the fast-spinning gears of a local machining plant in Allentown, Pennsylvania, for the princely sum of three cents a day. Shortly after completing his memoir, the boy found himself stuck within the teeth of two massive gears, bringing the entire operation to a screeching halt. After a few moments, steam pressure eventually increased, and the boy dutifully greased the gearing with his innards, and production continued apace. The boy's parents, who also worked at that same plant, were each docked a month's pay, forbidden from shopping at the company store, and forced to sell most of their children to wealthy cattlemen out west to cover the lost profit brought about by the brief cessation of plant production. Andrew Carnegie called this slap on the wrist a shine of the weakening fortitude of this great nation and the influence of the swarthy Eastern European oaf and his paper superstitions. These ne'er-do-wells banded together for common cause to affect social and economic change for their own benefit. Now, it should be said that these lazy scofflaws, who only worked 96 hours a week, with a 30-minute break for church on Sundays, mind you, were promptly beaten or shot to death until Teddy Roosevelt realized that if the wealthy elite didn't lose a little bit of money by granting some of these requests, they would most assuredly lose all of it after the impending communist revolution and resulting purges murdered them all. Sickened by the thought of suit-covered ragamuffins diving into the mountains of treasure stored deep within their vaults under the earth, the robber barons reluctantly relented and allowed the enactment of nation-destroying reforms. So for a brief aberration in our nation's history, working hours were reduced, wages increased, workplace safety was regulated, and more people collectively prospered than during any previous period of American history. The dystopian future imagined by J.P. Morgan and John D. Rockefeller had finally come to pass. Luckily, this abhorrent state of affairs was merely a passing fancy as rapid globalization and the collapse of communism meant that cheap, foreign labor could again be exploited, this time in actual foreign countries, allowing the elite to pursue their birthright of increasing their vast wealth whilst impoverishing their fellow countrymen as commanded by their god. Meet the new world, same as the old one. That's it for this episode. Please walk, don't run, as you exit... Rad Bandalars, Hysterocitor.